6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 26 through 29. And obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and right with you. Right, with you. right unto you. But know for certain that, if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves, and upon this city, and upon its inhabitants. For of a truth, the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Heavy trip. Jeremiah is one of these impressive guys. He doesn't mess around. In the privacy of his dialogue with the Lord, we heard earlier where he sort of complains and he's got a heavy trip, and once the Lord set him straight on that, he never again complained. We talked about that before. But publicly, he never, ever flinches, adjusts, backs off, lays it on. I, I'm always reminded of, of, of Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 3, his three friends? When Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw him in the fiery furnace. And um, I love the saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the God of our fathers is able to protect us. But even if he doesn't, Jeremiah is saying the same thing. He says, God told me to say this to you. I'm telling you one more time. But if you want to kill me, fine. You know. Important thing to remember when you're in conflict. What can they do to you besides kill you? You know. Right? That's all they're going to do to you. The Lord says, be, don't be worried about those that can kill the body. And more things, there's more important things to sweat. So, um, of a truth, the Lord uh, hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. This is one of the many places, but perhaps the crispest place, where we, we never see Jeremiah in a better light. It's, uh, uh, he's direct. He's courageous. His conduct is absolutely appropriate, how we can learn from him. One of our prayers might be that we might be Jeremiah's, that under the pressure of confrontation, we don't flinch, amend, weasel word. I want you to know how concerned Jeremiah is in terms of being tactful. Now, then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. I want you not to miss something interesting here. The trial that he's on was in the temple and brought onto him by the priests and the prophets. Verse 11, Then spoke the priests and the prophets unto the princes to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die. He is under ecclesiastical indictment. It's a heresy trial. Right? Who saves him? Well, the Holy Spirit, sure. But, I mean, what agency does the Holy Spirit use? The civil authorities. The civil authorities. I think that's kind of interesting. 
It's the princes of the people. See, it's at verse 16. Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets. See, his accusers are these false prophets, these pseudo-prophets that we've heard about before and we're going to hear more about in the next few chapters. <laughs> we're going to see them get their due shortly. But it's the people, the laymen, that say, This man is not worthy to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of our Lord our God. Verse 17, Then rose up certain of the elders of the land, and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah, the Moorish height, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house like the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah the king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. How? By ignoring this message. Where does that tremendous spiritual insight come from? The denominational leadership? Feel like allow me that? Mm -hmm. They go on. And there was also a man prophesied the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, the of the Kirith Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against this land, according to all the words of Jeremiah. And Jehoiakim, the king, and all his mighty men, and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid, fled, and went to went unto Egypt. And Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, saying, namely, Eldathon, the son of uh, Achbor, and certain men with him into Egypt. They had extradition there, incidentally. And they fetched Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. By the way, the point that he's making here, he was denied due process. And he also was denied burial in the normal way. Verse 24, Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Interesting. It's very, very interesting to me to watch Jeremiah's under trial. This is not the only time he's going to get a lot of, he creates a lot of flack wherever he goes. Every man of God seems to do that. Um, but um, it's interesting that in this case, it happens to be the civil authorities that attempt to, uh, in fact, do succeed here in, in rescuing him from, from uh, the designs of, of the other, the ecclesiastical leadership. Uh, the references to Micah, generally when we think of King Hezekiah, we think of Isaiah, but we should be sensitive to the fact there are multiple prophets on these kings. Micah also prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, roughly about 800 B.C. And... Um, this is an interesting direct citation of that. It correlates with Micah 3.12 and also 2 Kings 18, for those of you that might want to crack that down on your, on your own. Amos and Hosea also were co-habitants, if you will, of that particular period of time. So Uriah is mentioned. He's a true prophet. Kiriath-Jerim um, is about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem on the, way to, on the road to Jaffa. Uh, that's mentioned uh, in Joshua 9, if that sounds familiar to you. That's one reason for Samuel 7. And he is extradited after he fled to Egypt. Um, Jehoiakim, you realize, was a vassal of, of Egypt, so it wasn't hard for him to, 
to bring him back uh, and uh, slaughter to him. And Jehoiakim, of course, is the grandfather to Jehoiachin or Jeconiah, the one that we talked about that had the blood curse on him that, in effect, is, is uh, sets up, if you will, the virgin birth that we talked about before. Okay, El Nathan that we heard saw here is apparently the grandfather uh, of Jehoiakim. That's what I meant to say. Second Kings twenty four eight, father in law of Jehoiakim, a man of status, etc. Uh, he was slayed, denied due process. I've mentioned that. Um, oh yeah, we also have run into this Jehoiakim. Uh, he's an official uh, under Jehoiachin. That's in Second Kings twenty two. For those of you taking notes on that. He's the father of Gedaliah, which we're going to see shortly, governor of Judah under Nebuchadnezzar after the fall of Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar finally has a belly full of this whole episode, on his third siege, he levels the city, takes them all captive, and uh, puts up a governor, Governor Gedaliah. And uh, he is uh, uh, he's uh, going to be prominent in Jeremiah later on. But at this point, Jehoiakim, who is um, the father of Gedaliah, espouses Jeremiah's cause and helps get obtain his release. We're in chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, here again we have this in the beginning phrase in the first half. Now here's one of those places, by the way, that um, your Bible may say Jehoiakim, but the best, there's a lot of good technical substantiation that this is actually a copying error. This is Zedekiah. And your marginal notes may, may make reference to that. There's a, the best manuscripts here actually say Zedekiah, and there's other reasons why that seems to fit more appropriately, but we'll just keep going on. Uh, there's a copyist uh, uh, error, possibly. No big deal for you and I, but I footnote it as we go, just for your own, uh, your own background. Now, thus saith the Lord to me, make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck. Now, this is one of those cases that's going to sound reminiscent of Ezekiel. Here's where Jeremiah is going to take on not only a message, but sort of an object lesson. He's going to resort to theatrics. He's going to take a yoke, like a, a, a classical symbol of servitude, and biblically too, as a symbol of servitude, it shows up in 1 Kings 22, Ezekiel 7, and other places. I don't think we have to badger that one. Obviously, you run around with a yoke around your neck, you're making a point. Um, but that's exactly what Jeremiah does. And I'm always intrigued. Some of these commentators say, well, it was just symbolic. Well, his enemy later on breaks it, so it mustn't be too symbolic because it lends itself to being broken, whatever it is. So uh, I personally see no reason not to recognize that Jeremiah, at the Lord's instruction, fabricated a large, probably clumsy, conspicuous yoke and wore it to make a point. Okay? <laughs> he had a way of—this is his, his approach to— um, to rhetoric, let's see what he does with this thing. The Lord says, "The Lord, thus said the Lord unto me: Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them up on thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by the hand of messengers who come to Jerusalem unto Zedekiah the king of Judah." See, the Zedekiah shows up here. That's why this is important. But the point is, he doesn't make just one. He makes, you know, a bunch of these, and he. Where's one himself, as you'll see shortly? And he sends them to these kings, a whole bunch of them. They're all going to be kings that will be ultimately subjugated by Nebuchadnezzar. And that's Jeremiah's point. That's his way of getting across what's coming, guys. So he sends these yokes to the king of Edom, Moab, Ammonites, and then, of course, Tyre and Sidon, which up to the north, and command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say to your masters, he's giving these instructions to the messengers that are going to 
present their bosses with these yokes, right? <laughs> I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed right unto me. God gives it to whom he will. He's the creator presenting this um, issue on his authority as the creator. He goes on, and verse 6, And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given also to serve him. Strange suggestion. There's a lot here that we should just pause about. First of all, we should not miss the very peculiar label where the God of Israel, bear in mind now we've been through a lot of books from the Torah, book of Genesis, five books of Moses on, where God identifies himself as the God of Israel, and he's going to deal with mankind through Israel. It must have been on strange ears that uh, it fell that God through Jeremiah spoke of Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan, idol-worshiping king, as the servant of Jehovah. Strange phrase. It's used three times of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah. It should not surprise us as students of the Bible because Isaiah uses even a stronger term of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, and Cyrus uh, uh, is in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire. He's in confronted when he conquers Jerusalem at the gates with the dusty old scroll of the book of Isaiah. And where they read from chapter 44 and 45 where God addresses a letter to him by name calling him Cyrus, mine anointed. I have surnamed thee, even though you have not known this is a scroll written 150 years before Cyrus was born. And God says, because I'm naming you by name, you will know that I am the God of Israel. Cyrus is impressed. He's impressed enough to turn him loose and let him go home. That's where it starts the, the return from the captivity. But here we have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, spoken of as my servant. You know, it's interesting. I think that Daniel was a very, very effective student of prophecy, of the Bible. We know that. Specifically, we know that he read the book of Jeremiah because he makes that reference in chapter 9. It's no surprise, then, that Daniel had no trouble with Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't compromise his, his uh, posture with him as a follower of the God of Israel. When he was a teenager, departed as a teenager in the first deportation to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, took the most promising top students and brought them to the court of Babylon and, and uh, to train them in the court. And Daniel was among those. And he talked his boss, his supervisor, into allowing them to preserve their Jewish traditions. And uh, that led, of course, to this uh, dream thing in chapter 2 where Daniel impresses the king with his gifts, spiritual gifts, in effect. And he is always treats Nebuchadnezzar with great respect. And even when he's an old man called out of retirement by Nebuchadnezzar's grandson to interpret the handwriting on the wall, even there, Daniel doesn't only interpret the handwriting on the wall, he puts this turkey down, saying, now your grandfather there was a king, not you, punk, you know. And that's almost the way he deals with it. And uh, it's interesting. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar, what's so interesting to me about Nebuchadnezzar is we're going to find in another chapter here or so that there's the first letter written in the, in the, in the, in the Scripture. Well, actually, that's the way the comment is. I think there's a very interesting letter in Daniel chapter 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is written by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world at that time. And he describes how he was king of the world and on an ego trip, 
and how God warned him that on that ego trip, he's going to bring him down for seven years. And then Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen and he boasts and sure enough, kavoom, the Lord renders him into with a mental illness for seven years. At the end of the seven years, he's recovered and he returns and he realizes that the God of Israel is the God of the universe. And so says in a letter and puts it throughout the known world, posts it on every major post office bulletin board. And um, so I think, and I, of course, as I think I've shared with you, Daniel is by tradition, not in the script, by tradition, the guy that took care of him during those seven years of, of incapacitation, uh, incapacity. But uh, so Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, strange thing. So, and it's also the beasts of the field have I also given to serve him. And I think it's interesting that particular form of mental derangement that God gave Nebuchadnezzar when it's time to humble him was the delusion that he it was lycanthropy, that he was to be with the beasts. He ate of the grass. He was, he was really uh, spaced out. Now, and it says, uh, verse 7, and all nations shall serve him. What nations do you suppose he had in mind? I suppose he meant Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, Tyre, Sidon. These very guys are getting the yokes by messenger. Right? All the known world in that time, of course, becomes subjugated to, to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we're going to find out shortly in the next chapter, I think it is, that not only was this, the Babylonian captivity prophesied to be 70 years, we talked about that, Ned, the, their freedom will be linked to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's the end of the Babylonian rule. Not only is the 70 years the captivity, but at the end of the 70 years, they're not only allowed to go free, but Babylon will be conquered. We know it's by the Persians. And we also know that the Persians were ultimately conquered by the Greeks, exactly like Daniel said. And uh, I don't know if you realize you celebrate that every time you hear a marathon. Was it the runner from Marathon that ran 26 miles to let the Greeks know that they defeated the Persians and all of that? So that's all part of our vocabulary today, interestingly enough. Okay, now have I gotten all these uh, lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, verse 6, my servant, the beast of the field, have I give, uh, given him also to serve him, and all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall enslave him. In fact, here it is. This is the verse. That is, it's not too obvious, but when you put this all together, you realize that not only are they going to be slaves 70 years, three generations, Nebuchadnezzar, his son, the evil Merodach, and then his son, Belshazzar. Three generations. You have to recognize that the Chaldean and the Hebrew do not have words for grandson or grandfather. A son is simply a progenitor. Or, a, you know, in other words... It is an immediate son. That can cause a lot of confusion. Nebuchadnezzar's son is his grandson also. And Belsha, and we and, and for generations, for, for, for up until not too long ago, our, the version of the fall of Babylon that was in the Bible was regarded as quaint myths by the um, historians because we had all kinds of reasons to believe that uh, the fall of Babylon happened quite differently. And it was relatively recent, relative like if, you know, a few, some decades ago, but that uh, archaeologists have discovered that they were co-regents at the time. The king of Babylon was absent, actually, didn't get killed that night, as the Bible says, uh, according to his uh, secular history, except it turns out they were co-regents, and Belshazzar was there and did die that way. And, in fact, it not only corroborates the book of Daniel, but there's evidence that it had to be written by an eyewitness. We cover all that in the Daniel tapes, if you're interested in taking into that. Very interesting. But in case here it says that Nebuchadnezzar will not only rule all these nations, but through three generations. But it also says that the, after the third generation, until the time of his land come, 
and then many nations and great kings shall enslave him. Plural. Not one, a pair. The Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes dominant at first, the Persians, the Persians gaining, it's a joint venture really, but the Persians, uh, uh, you know, rise to, to uh, greater prominence in the, in the later times of that empire. And they, indeed, and they did indeed prevail over Babylon. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass that he, excuse me, that the nation and kingdom that will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. That's got to be tough for the Jewish listener to hear that, uh, that uh, Jeremiah is, is telling them that God is behind this pagan, idol-worshiping king, and he is going to see to it that anyone that doesn't submit to this heathen is going to be put to death by the sword, by famine, or by pestilence. Interesting. Verse 9, Therefore, hearken not to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers. You can put in there anything you like, your astrologers, your economic forecasters. The names are probably deleted from your Bible, Edgar Casey, Gene Dixon, and all of that. Who speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and ye should perish. Very interesting. Very interesting. He is attacking the false prophets. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ answers his disciples. There's four disciples come to him privately, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, say, hey, how will we know when you're going to return? And he gives them a confidential briefing for two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. And you may recall in there that he says that many false prophets shall arise, right? That they should deceive if it were possible the very elect, right? I was having dinner with Hal Lindsey the other night, and he, and he, uh, he was pointing out to me as he read that, read it a thousand times, the Greek really says that the false prophets will arise for the purpose of deceiving the very elect, if it were possible. Fortunately, it's not possible. What's interesting in the Greek grammar isn't just that there's false prophets that are so effective that the very elect uh, would be deceived if that were possible, right? The language in the Greek is more assertive than that. The Greek implies that the reason the false prophets will arise is for the purpose of deceiving the very elect. You stop and think about it, that's pretty obvious, because the others don't need deceiving. Okay? So this business of false prophets is a worthy study. We see it here in Jeremiah, because that's his whole uh, burden, if you will. But it's also, what's interesting, as you read the book of Revelation, the emphasis on that, the false teaching, the deviant doctrine. We're citizens just passing through, okay? But here anyway, Jeremiah for they prophesy a lie to you to remove you from your land, that I should drive you out, and ye should perish. 
Verse 11, but the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell there. He's speaking now to these heathen nations. Bear in mind, he's talking to the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so forth. Right here, he's not talking to Judah. Okay. They remain in their land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell there. Verse 12. I spoke also to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Why will ye die, thou and thy people, by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Lord hath spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie. See, the prophets are that the false prophets are running around saying, Hey, people, don't sweat it. God's going to protect you. It looks looks pretty grim, but God's going to God's not going to let anything happen to us. After all, we're His people, right? Jeremiah is the lone voice saying, Uh, uh-uh, you got it backwards, guys. Time's up. Verse fifteen. For I have not sent them, that is, he's probably, he says, let me back, let me give a thought back at verse 14. He says, therefore hearken not unto the words of the prophets, read that, pseudo-prophets, that speak unto you, saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you. For I have not sent them, saith the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I might drive you out, that ye might perish, ye and the prophets that prophesy unto you. Something you need to realize is that not only are false prophets misguided, they are the pawns of Satan. Remember Balaam the prophet? That was the, well, there's three things. There's the doctrine, the error, and so on, the doctrine of Balaam. And all three are mentioned in the New Testament. We study that when we get into, uh, uh, you know, it's all, of course, in Numbers, but we study it again, the seven letters, seven churches. You need to recognize that Balaam was an instrument of evil, in effect, because he was the mechanism by which Israel's enemies found out how to thwart them, kept have them fall from favor. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.